Well, you guys, we're uh, coming towards the end of our series in, in 2 Corinthians. We've been in it uh, for the better part of this fall. And today we're in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Um, next week, we're going to press pause on 2 Corinthians. And I'm actually going to be talking about adoption from the scripture and how we, as the adopted children of God, all by grace, all by God's bringing us into his fold and his family, um, how much then, in light of that, should we care about the issue of orphan care and adoption and foster care and so forth? And uh, we're going to have a family share with you, as Amanda mentioned. And so, um, and then on the following week after that will be our last week in Second Corinthians, um, and uh, Josh will be preaching from Second Corinthians 13. So today, Second Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10, the passage is found in your bulletin, and if you've got a Bible, turn there as well. Let's read it together, and then we'll dig in. Paul writes this, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. One of the primary themes throughout the biblical story is how God uh, delights in using people who are weak to confound the world and to show his power through that. I mean, as you look back through the whole story of the Bible, the very first man that God called to himself, he and his wife, and and said, you'll be mine and go and follow me was the man Abraham. And as you read the story of Abraham and then his lineage, it's, you see like Abraham has as much fear as he has faith. And he's known for being a man of faith, but he's a man of great fear as well. He's weak. And one of Paul's themes in Corinthians is highlighting just how weak he is throughout it. He starts in chapter 1 admitting how weak he is. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, excuse me, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then in the previous passage from two weeks ago or last week, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses, that highlight my weakness." Who does that? I mean, do you know of anyone that goes around boasting about their weakness? (laughs) 
Like, I went to the gym this week, man. You're not going to believe it. And I bench pressed 25 pounds. I went running, and I ran a 15-minute mile. I ran as hard as I could, and I ran it in 15 minutes. No one boasts of that kind of weaknesses. I graduated with a 1.0 from high school. Yes. I took the ACT. I got a 9, you know. Nobody says, look at me. Look how weak I am. We just don't do it. Instead, we accentuate our positives, right, and we hide our weakness. We try to cover our weakness. We push our weaknesses back. None of us wants to be exposed as weak. Look at the way we take pictures now in the, in the digital age. Every single one of us carries around a, a really high-quality camera in our pockets, and so we're constantly taking pictures, and when we do, we're kind of like, eh, take another one. Will you like, my shirt was wrinkled. Oh, take another one. I look a little fat now. Okay, take another one because she wasn't smiling. Take another, take another, take another until finally you're like, yes, I will finally give the world this picture. It doesn't look a thing like me, but I look beautiful. And so I take this to social media, which is good yet twisted. And so into the world, and here it is. We hide our weaknesses. We wear clothes to hide our weakness. We don't talk about it. Look at the ways we build our resume. You know, I just got an email from somebody that was interested in, coming to work for New Valley as like an intern, and I said, send me, send me your resume. I kind of laughed as I did because I was writing this sermon this week as I, as I did, and I was thinking, it's all going to be hidden anyway. I mean, he's just going to tell me like, look at how great I am. Right? I mean, that's what we do in resumes, and references are worse, right? Call this guy because he's going to say he's incredible, but don't call Tom because Tom will say, I fired him for laziness three years ago. We don't do that. That's supposed to be funny. Three points today as we follow the narrative, Paul's story, um, the vision that he had, the thorn and the purpose of the thorn, and then this gospel paradox that we see at the end, this boasting and weakness, lifting up weakness instead of hiding weakness, revealing weakness and the reason for it. First of all, this vision. We just read about it in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Uh, these false teachers had come into Corinth and they were teaching a, a different gospel to the degree, and that word gospel just means good news. He's teaching, th- these false teachers probably from Jerusalem have come in and they're teaching a different message that's so different than Paul's that he says it's a different gospel and it's even like a different Jesus. They're really not even talking about the same thing. We talked a lot about that last week. He pejoratively calls them the super apostles because they're so gifted and they're so powerful. As they come into town, the church is growing. There's a big crowd coming. Everyone thinks he's incredible. These super apostles are amazing because they're so powerful, so gifted. When they walk into town, they're wearing really nice clothes. Uh, There's a, a backtrack playing that says, all I do is win, win, win. You know, everything is just up, good, good. It's all power. But then Paul, in contrast, is weak. And the Greeks, many of you studied the Greeks, you studied Greek literature, you know they're into heroic adventures, the Odyssey. They're they're into tales of adventure, heroes, the, the Greek gods. They're into just power and strength and rhetoric. And Paul comes along and they don't like his preaching at all. He's not impressive. When they come to town, the super apostles, they don't limp because they haven't been persecuted, jailed, beaten, flogged, that kind of thing. But when Paul comes to town, he uses a cane and he limps and he's older and he's beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He told us all about it in chapter 11, all the things he's endured for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, I don't hide those from you. 
I bring them forward. Look how weak I am. Look how weak I am. But not the super apostles. We have super apostles in our culture, right? Everything's victorious. Everything's about overcoming. Everything's up, up, good, good. Jesus is only here to like make you rich. If you have enough faith, you can have it all. Give to my campaign. I got a new jet I got to have to fly around the world because it's all about victory and more, more, more. Paul says, no, I, 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 I'm weak. I'm weak. By the way, as you think about pastors and apostles and Christian celebrities, like, are they bringing unity or are they bringing division? Ask yourself that. Is there a humility? Are they pointing to Jesus or are they pointing to themselves? Are they lifting up Christ? Are they, are they telling a different gospel? Are they the hero or is Jesus the hero? And you gotta ask yourself these questions about super apostles. And response to these super apostles' story of victory, winning upon winning, and we did this in God's name, and we healed these people in God's name, Paul then decides to tell a story about himself, which is interesting, and you see this conflict in Paul often in his letters, where he says, I don't want to boast, but then he kind of boasting, and I don't want to defend myself, but then he sort of kind of defends himself, and right here, this is sort of what he's doing. He's saying, look, these guys have stories and they have all these visions, but let me tell you a story about a guy I know who had a vision and he went to the third heaven. Now at first this is very confusing because he's talking about this story from the third person, but as you go farther into verse seven, you realize, wait a minute, he's talking about himself. So Paul is telling a story that early in his ministry, when he had just probably become an apostle 14 years earlier, he was taken, I don't know whether it was in the body or just in his you know, spirit, he says, God knows, and he goes to the third heaven. Now, the third heaven is not like the third floor of heaven, like, you know, first floor, <laughs> new convert, second floor, you know, whatever, <laughs> ordinary pastors, third floor, super apostles, I think what he means is the third floor of heaven, meaning like I am literally transported by the Holy Spirit into God's very presence, the Holy of Holies, where he literally experienced present, the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When I hear that story, what I want to say is give us the details. <laughs> I mean, right? Aren't you fascinated? What comes next? I mean, what is heaven like? What... What did they say to you? What were they wearing? Was there music? What was going on? Is there golf in heaven? Is there fun? You know, I mean, what is happening there? What is going on? But he doesn't tell us any of it, and he says basically, like, I saw things that I can't tell you about, and I heard things that I can't utter, but he said it, of course, in the third person. See, if you want stories of victory, Paul says, I've got them. I've got them. But then he goes on and talks about the result of this amazing experience of what God then brought into his life right after this victory, this ecstatic experience, this miracle. He talks about it in the thorn and the purpose of the thorn. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, he says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. See, he's talking about himself. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. So he said that twice. So one of the purposes in this is to keep him from becoming conceited, from having pride. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And if you go to sleep right now after this, there's one thing I want you to take from this sermon. It's, it's what I just read, and so I want you to repeat it with me, and I don't do this a whole lot, but would you do this? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, you didn't follow along very well. Let's do that again. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. One more time. For my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul, I mean, he had victory upon victory if you think about it. Uh, Most of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, uh, you, you may have a neat story to tell, but Paul's was this. He was out killing Christians, okay, persecuting the church, hated the church, doing everything he could to stop it, and Jesus shows up one day, knocks him off his horse, and says, you're going to follow me, and, and I'm going to change the world with your life, but you're going to suffer incredibly for me. And his whole conversion started out with a miracle. You know, <laughs> God shows up and speaks to him directly. Jesus Christ tells him, Saul quits persecuting me, follow me, and let's go. You're gonna become an apostle to the Gentiles. Then, then what happens? Uh, he's transported to the third floor of heaven. I've had some pretty neat experiences with God and the Holy Spirit, but I, I, I've never gone to the throne room of God. I don't know about you, and I've never heard of anyone who has. Thousands of people came to faith through his ministry. He literally started the New Testament church. If you think about it, outside of Jerusalem, they had the church, Acts 2. After that, pretty much Paul and his band of buddies, they're the reason why there was a church outside of Israel. And, And so he did that. He planted the church. He wrote a third of the New Testament, pretty much. He healed people left and right. He drove out evil. And he suffered like crazy. He suffered so much. Why? Well, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, and Satan meant it for evil, of course, but God meant it for good. Now, we've already been told in 2 Corinthians 11 of how much he suffered. Shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, uh, imprisoned multiple times, run out of town, all this stuff. So he's already, he's already illuminated to us. I've suffered a ton, but then in addition to the suffering from uh, chapter 11, in chapter 12 we found out there's something very private and personal, uh, a huge suffering in his life that he calls the thorn in the flesh. Now, it's probably not literally a thorn in the flesh, but a metaphor for something he's dealing with. What was it? Well, he doesn't tell us. Some people say blindness. Some people say uh, the persecutions that he experienced in chapter 12. Others say physical pain or some illness, uh, psychological issues, depression, post-traumatic stress, whatever it may be, we don't know because he didn't tell us, and I'm glad he didn't tell us, and here's why. If he told us, then only one of us could relate to what he's dealing with if you have that issue, but he says, I had this horrible thorn in the flesh and... So do you, I'm sure. You have some besetting problems, some difficulty, some pain, some psychological issues, some depression, whatever it is, that's your thorn. And Paul's saying, I can relate to you. I had one too. Have you ever had a thorn in the flesh? A literal one, though. <laughs> like, I grew up in the Midwest. 
you could do yard work and maybe never see a thorn. Here, you just go out into your yard and start touching stuff. You get a thorn in the flesh, right? I mean, every plant has a thorn. And when you poke yourself, it hurts, but it doesn't just hurt for a minute. It keeps hurting because there's poison in it. And it keeps hurting and itching and, and it makes you suffer. But what Paul is kind of talking about is a thorn, I think like a splinter that gets in under the skin, gets infected. There's the poison. And it's so painful that every time you even bump up against it, it hurts, right? And then Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to remove this from me. I pleaded with the Lord, and I'm so glad that he said this because I need to know that it's right to plead with the Lord as, as the, the, the persistent widow pleaded with the Lord. So if anything, don't take away, because he only pleads three times for some reason, do not take away from this that you should not plead with the Lord in prayer. Are you sick? Plead with the Lord in prayer for healing. A loved one, are you suffering? Are you battling depression? Are you battling some difficulty? Let's plead together with the Lord in prayer to contend with him in prayer as the widow prayed. But Paul says at some point during his prayer, the Lord showed him, I'm not gonna remove the thorn, but my grace will be sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Say that with me one more time. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, but I don't want that. I don't want God's power to be made perfect to me in weakness. I want God's power to be made for me in my strength or to get me out of weakness. I'm sick. Heal me now. I'm in debt. Get me out of debt. Give me money. I don't have a job. Get me a job. Get me a better job. I'm depressed, make me feel good, like now. But instead, often, God does not answer that prayer to remove it. Instead, he'll say to you through life circumstances or just simply saying no in prayer, that no, my answer to you is my grace is going to be sufficient for you. And the reason or a purpose underneath this for every, every follower of Jesus is this. His strength is made more powerful to us in weakness than it is in strength. His power is made more powerful to us in, when we are weak than when we're strong. You know that's true. You wish it weren't. It just is. We want God to give us power to overcome our problem. We want him to overcome the problem. But instead, he often gives us sufficient grace to endure. Why? Because God's life-changing power is perfected in weakness, not in strength. It just is. You know it's true. When you suffer, when you're, when you're down, when, when things are going difficult, that is when we feel the closest to the Lord, when we call upon him, and when we grow the most because God's grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness, not strength. I don't like it and neither do you, but it, it's the reality of, of life and how God has designed us. We ask, why can't I find a job? Why am I still single? Why is my marriage so difficult? Why does my dad have cancer? Why don't we have children? Why are my children driving me crazy? Why am I friendless and lonely? Why doesn't God remove the pain and suffering of emotional depression or physical pain that I'm dealing with? And truthfully, the reality is in most every instance like this, you don't get an answer. 
And if somebody comes along and says, I think I know the specific reason why you're still single, why you're depressed, why, 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 if they give you a very specific reason, they're probably wrong because nobody knows but God. I mean, I, it's been very rare when I've suffered that I have a very direct answer. This is why you're suffering. Instead, it's this. I'm, my grace is sufficient and my power will be made more perfect in your weakness, not your strength. I think that's the answer. I don't know specifically, we may not get an answer until we get to God's presence, but I know this, his weakness, when I'm weak, his power is made stronger. And so brothers, sisters, friends, those who are struggling to believe, if your weakness is on display right now, guess what? You're in a great place. If you're just like these super apostles right now and all you're doing is winning, that's great, enjoy it, it ain't gonna last. Have fun but you're probably not gonna experience God's power. So if your weakness, though, is on display right now, not your strength, your weakness, and you're going through brokenness, difficulty, trauma, whatever, guess what? You're in a place right now where God's power is probably gonna be made more perfect in your life to become more like Jesus, because that's his goal, is it not? I want him to heal me, make me happy, make me feel good, but his goal is to make me more like his son, to make me not happy, but, but holy, Next is this gospel paradox of Paul boasting in, in weakness. Paul kind of like celebrating almost how weak he is. He says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. As if I lift up my weakness, then Christ is glorified. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content. I'm content with weakness. I boast in my weakness. I'm content with weakness with insults, hardship, the persecution, the calamities, for when I'm weak, I'm actually strong. When I'm strong, I'm actually spiritually weak because I don't depend upon the Lord as I might normally. Why do we boast? Why do we brag? Why do we humble boast? Talk about social media, right? We do it ultimately because we want people to be impressed with us. I want people to be impressed with me, so I'm gonna boast a little, brag a little about me or my kids or my family or my work or some success that I'm enjoying, and I do it in order for people to be impressed with me, right? That's why we do it. And then there's all these other underlying reasons, like insecurity, by the way, the, the most braggadocious people you know are probably the most insecure people you've ever met in your life. Why are they doing it? <laughs> they need to, everyone has to be impressed with them. What's driving that? Deep insecurity. It could be meanness. Some people are just mean. I want you to feel bad about yourself, so I'm gonna boast and have people be impressed with me. Usually it's insecurity. Sometimes it's narcissism. But ultimately, we boast in our strengths because we want people to be impressed with us. Look at my job, look at my background, look at my education, look at my looks, look at how much I work out, look at my body, look at my kids, my stuff, my spouse, my clothes, etc., etc., etc. All I do is win. <laughs> and when we boast in our strength, people might be impressed with us, but I was just reading in Time Magazine this week how the reality is, especially with humble bragging, that the whole like, you know, it stinks being a model, I never get to eat cake, you know, <laughs> Oh, I hate being a supermodel. It's just so hard. Well, 
People hate the humble brag. They'd rather just say, I love being a supermodel and I hope you all are jealous. Like they, they're more impressed with that. But the truth is, no one really loves it when we boast and when we boast in our strength, people might be impressed with us, but in reality, when we boast in our weakness, what Paul is saying, people will be impressed with Christ. And that seems counterintuitive, but it's true. As we... Is there's this weird thing in the gospel Paul is saying is if, if I highlight my weakness, then Jesus gets the glory, Jesus gets the fame and the, and, and the power, not me, it's not, a, it's not about me. Now Paul keeps saying, I boast in my weakness, I brag about my weakness, I want to hide my weakness, I don't want you to know about it, I'm, going to exp- I'm not gonna expose my weakness, I'm gonna try to minimize my weakness, right? You do the same. Paul says, I brag about it, and I don't know if I can relate to that about boasting and weakness. I just don't see getting to the point saying, yeah, I go to this gym and there's a 12-year-old. I'm doing it right now. So, but I'm being, it's self-deprecating humor, really. The gym I go to, there's a 12-year-old that beats me every time in the workout we do. And it's a girl. <laughs> and she weighs about 70 pounds. And that's the facts. But here's the reality. I don't really want you to know that. I'm just doing it because I have to professionally right now. But anyway... <laughs> What Paul says is this, as we embrace, this is the way I'm interpreting this, because I really can't relate to the idea of boasting or bragging and weakness, but I can relate to the idea of embracing my brokenness and my weakness. As I embrace it, I'm strong. As I embrace it. As we embrace our weakness and brokenness, we're made strong. And here's the thing, embracing your weakness and your brokenness is, is pivotal and it's powerful. It really is, spiritually embracing your brokenness and your weakness is there's power in it and it's actually a pivot point meaning you know you know what a pivot is change go in a different direction you know what you really you really can't even follow Jesus with the very first step of following until you are broken and humbled enough to say I am dead in my sin I'm not, I have to agree with Ephesians too and say, I'm not only, you know what, I'm not only sick in sin, I'm actually dead in sin. It's that bad. I'm that broken. I'm that sinful. I can't save myself. Ephesians 2 talks about like, it's so bad that Christ had to die the death that I deserved and, and without him, without him living his life for me and dying his death for me and being raised from the dead for me, I would have no hope. So do you understand like, the, even the first pivot towards faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a Christian means you have to embrace your brokenness and your desperation to say, I need you, God. There's nothing else uh, I can do to make things right between me and you. I can't be righteous enough. I can't be religious enough. I can't do it. You've got to do it. I mean, that's broken, right? That's humbled. That's weak. I'm not just spiritually weak. I'm dead. Ephesians 2. For recovery from addiction... There's no pivoting, there's no power, there's no turning. If, you, if you're addicted, and by the way, we all are, if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Paul, then we're all addicted to sin, at least, but many of us are addicted to uh, substance abuse or sexual addiction. There's a million different addictions, and the reality is we're all using our addictions to fuel our hearts and try to fill up and soothe ourselves and self-medicate, and the way to get out of that, Paul would say, is embrace your brokenness. There's a reason why in the 12 steps that the first step is what? It's, it's to admit that you're helpless to overcome this without the Lord Jesus. They say a higher power, but it's Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, 
you're, you're helpless. You're hopeless. We're all addicts. We're all in recovery to addiction. And Jesus is the way out. It's his power. And we won't experience help in our addictions until we get to the place where we say, I'm broken, I'm that broken. And I'll tell you, Lord, I'll tell a community of people, I'm broken, I'm that broken, and I need help, Lord, I need the way out. I can't do it on my own, I can't work my way out of this mess. For dealing with besetting and struggling of sin, it's all the same, like addiction. I mean, there are these sins that we say to ourselves, I will never do that again, I'm, I'm, never, gonna, I'm never gonna do that again. You're lying. But admit your brokenness to the Lord. Admit your brokenness to others. Be real and say, I'm desperate. Without your help, Holy Spirit, I will definitely do that again. I'm gonna repeat this over and over and over. I'm desperate, Lord. You must come. You must heal. You must heal the broken parts of me. I'm desperate. You can't grow and be sanctified. You can't even make spiritual growth until you get to the place where you say, I am broken, and here's why. The ultimate in sanctification is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? To love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And we don't have time to preach it today, but I love the passage in Luke 7 where the prostitute comes to Jesus, falls at her, his feet in worship, and he says she's forgiven much because she loves much, but we're forgiven little because we love little, or we love little because we're forgiven little. It's not until you get to the place where you feel and understand you have an infinite debt with a holy God who's infinitely holy, and he's forgiven of you that infinite debt, and now the response like this woman at Jesus' feet is to say, I love you, Lord Jesus, so much, and I love my neighbor. I have to. I got nothing to judge with my neighbor because I've been forgiven an infinite debt. Amen? That's a pivoting point of owning your brokenness. I, I need to grow in love. I don't know about you, <laughs> but sanctification, the, the thing that keeps me from being more sanctified is not more biblical knowledge, because I know a lot about the Bible. I've studied it. I've been in seminary. I've read a lot of theology. It's not more information. It's transformation of my heart to make me love Jesus and you more, you, my neighbor, amen? To care about others more, and theology is important but it's meant to drive me to love God more and to love my neighbor. For authenticity, one of the most freeing things in the world is to be an authentic community because the gospel's changing people. And it's such a drag to be around Christians that just aren't authentic because it's a lie. And you know, so if I come to you and go, how you doing, man? I'm, you know, and you say like, I'm doing fantastic. I don't know about you, but I invest in the stock market, and I am killing it right now. I mean, like, everyone else is losing, but I am flat getting it done. How's your marriage? So good. <laughs> like, when I get home, my wife meets me at the door, drops everything, and says, you're home. She kisses me. She has me sit down. She makes me a drink. She gives me a massage. It's unbelievable. How are the kids? They all have full-ride scholarships to major university, and they love God. They love people. I mean, it's just incredible. They're, they're going to Africa. One's going to China. They're just all serving people. It's amazing. Like, they, they've memorized half the New Testament in the original languages. I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> what these people are doing. Whew. Well, thanks for sharing, man, you know. That doesn't, and it's all a lie. And 
what really does free me, though, honestly, is when there's authenticity. If you're doing well, I want to hear it. But if you say, you know what, uh, things are going good, but, you know, in some ways it's really a struggle. And I'm broken. And man, I love my wife, but our marriage is hard. And you know what, I really, I love Jesus too, but gosh, I'm struggling to have, to even believe the basics right now. I'm really, you know, like, you know what that does? That frees me. That's a safe person for me to talk to. That's a safe person for me to be real with because that person is embracing their brokenness. They're not celebrating sin. Should I sin so that grace may increase, Paul asked? No, may it never be. Not saying that, saying no, but I'm broken and here's the reality. Here's the reality of my life right now and God is redeeming it, but man, this is the real thing here. Brokenness is the pivot point. It's the pivot point, and it's where the power begins. Um, a couple years ago, our oldest son uh, went to college. And I did not want to share this with you. This was not even in my plans to share with you. And while we were doing communion during the first service, the Lord told me to share this. And not in an audible voice, I've never heard that. I just felt like I needed to do this. And our son Jacob, he went away to college. He went to ASU. And his whole life, man, he was a kid that was born at Christ Hospital. I mean, come on. That's the way to get it started, right? Okay. Born at Christ Hospital. He was in church. That's a Sunday. He's born on Sunday in Christ Hospital. Brought to church the next Sunday, baptized a few weeks after that, brought up in the church, discipled, loved, encouraged from me, my wife, pastors in this church, friends, etc., etc. And when he got to college, he ran from the Lord. He didn't walk, he ran. And he kept running. And I kept pursuing him, and others that loved him kept pursuing him, and he kept running, and every time I would reach out to him, I would say, like, I'm concerned about you, man. Would you be real? No, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm concerned about you at multiple levels, too. It's not just spiritually, man. I'm concerned about your grades. I'm concerned about your health. I'm, you're not sleeping. You're not, you know, your life just seems crazy right now. I'm, cons- I'm deeply concerned about you, and it was all, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. That's not brokenness, and there's no power in that. And thanks be to God, there came a a point where he was broken, man. He did, he finally, by God's power and and the Holy Spirit, he became broken and he changed. And and I don't tell you that story to make you feel bad if your kid's not there yet, but to say, it's brokenness. It wasn't until he was broken when he was good, it's fine, it's fun, there's no problem at all whatsoever. And let me tell you, that was the most broken I have ever been in my entire life, ever. I lost my dad when I was 30. We lost both of Becky's parents and within the span of a year at this very same time. And you all knew about that, but what you didn't know is that our hearts were breaking over our son that was saying, I don't know if God's real. I don't know if the gospel's real. I am running from this, not towards it. And to have him even say the words like, yeah, I don't believe this anymore. I've never been more broken as a parent in my entire life. I've never, ever felt the Lord more close to me though, ever, (laughs) ever. Because when I'm weak, his power is perfected in me. His strength is made real, man. When you're weak, when you're broken, when you cry out to him for mercy, when you've got nothing left, you've got nothing. You, 
you don't have faith to believe. You don't have hope for this. You, you've got nothing except desperation. That's all you've got. And I've never experienced his presence and his power in my life like that before. And I never want to again, <laughs> considering how much suffering it was. You track with me? I mean, nobody wants to sign up for that, right? But his power is made perfect in weakness, and it's through brokenness. I knew we weren't getting anywhere when I talked to him. It was just, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. It wasn't until he was broken, his heart was broken, and he finally was able to admit, I am broken, I'm sinful, and I'm in a desperate need of a Savior. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says this, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. There's this amazing gospel paradox, friends, like Jesus Christ. There's no greater paradox from the gospel than this. The most infinitely powerful person in the, that's ever existed, Jesus Christ, emptied himself of all things to become one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. That's weak. And in his weakness, he conquered sin and death because he died my death that I deserved. In his weakness, I am made strong. In his weakness, when he died that death, there's no weaker thing he could have done as God in the flesh and as human in the flesh. He died the death I deserved and that you deserved, and then he conquered my sin and death by resurrecting from the dead and putting a death to death, amen? In his, his weakness, we're made strong. And in his strength and resurrection, we are as well. And in this week, as you deal with your weakness and your pain and your brokenness, and I pray that you will, that you'll embrace it because it's a turning point, you'll remember that in your weakness, his power is made perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our brother Paul who boasted in his weakness, who boasted in being such a weak person and we also see his strengths, Father, but we thank you for the, the humility that you brought him. And Father, I pray, I pray right now, Father, some of us are desperately aware of our brokenness and our weakness and Father, there are just folks here today that are just in desperate places and we pray that right there in that, that amazing place for, for your strength to be made evident for our friends right now, for the parent's heart who is just crying out because of a lost son or, or daughter, Lord have mercy. May your strength be made so evident. For that brother or sister that loves you and is faithful and wants to follow you so desperately but is just battling sexual addiction or same-sex attraction or a million other issues. Father, Lord, have mercy. Give them strength. May your grace be sufficient. For the brothers and sisters that are battling drug abuse and substance abuse, and so I'll never do this again, but just keep falling back in. Lord, have mercy. May your grace be sufficient. May your power may be made perfect in their weakness, O oh Lord. For pornography addiction, for a million issues that we deal with, just for 
issues of anger and depression and stress and anxiety and all the things we battle, Father. Some of these aren't even sin, Lord. They're just being in a broken world for the brother and sister with cancer or some other sickness. Or Lord, have mercy. Hear our cries of help. May our gra- your grace be sufficient. May your power may be perfect in our weaknesses, Father. May we bear one another's burdens. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.